Thank you for joining us. I want to welcome everyone to the final installment in STS's summer series of webinars. This series has run every other week and featured presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. STS would like to thank Medtronic for their generous support and sponsorship of this webinar and the STS summer series. Today's topic is controversial cases in mitral valve disease. We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I'm pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Dr. Gaurav Alwadi and Dr. Suyoshi Kaneko. Dr. Alwadi is the chairman of cardiac surgery and co-director of the Frankel Cardiovascular Center at University of Michigan Medical School. And Dr. Kaneko is a cardiac surgeon and director of aortic surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital and assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Alwadi, Dr. Kaneko, I'll now turn it over to you. Thank you, Wesley. Uh, what a summer it's been. Uh, I know all of us have dealt with uh, probably an unimaginable 2020 with COVID and riots, and I sincerely hope that all of you are safe and that you've all uh, begun the ramp up and hopefully well on your way to resuming your practices and delivering uh, safe and efficient care. Um, as you know, this is a controversial series. Uh, we've had uh, our most recent one uh, in adult cardiac surgery was about a month ago, focusing on aortic stenosis. Uh, this session is going to focus on uh, complex mitral disease. As we know, uh, there are many options now with transcatheter therapies, as well as surgery, including high-risk surgery. Um, we will ask uh, as much audience participation as possible. We'd love for uh, you, the audience, to uh, provide any questions uh, using the Q&A. I also want to thank Medtronic um, for their support, without which uh, none of the summer series would have been possible. So at this point, um, I would like to turn it over to Yoshi Kaneko. Uh, Yoshi, can you please introduce our outstanding panelists? Yeah, thank you, Gaurav. So we have a world-class panelist today um, from all over the country. Um, so first up is uh, Dr. Vinay Vajwar. Um, he's from West Virginia University. Um, Dr. Myra Guerrero from Mayo Clinic. Um, she is an interventional cardiologist. Um, Dr. Rob Smith from Baylor Plano. Dr. Postaraja from Minneapolis Heart. Uh, he's an interventional cardiologist. Dr. Gilbert Tang from Mount Sinai. And Dr. Dee Dee Wang from Henry Ford. Uh, she is a cardiologist who specializes in imaging. Um, we'll be going over a total of four cases uh, with complex mitral disease and we will present the case images and sort of ask for panelists opinion as well as the audience opinion of what kind of treatment we should be treating, we should be performing. And afterwards, we will sort of tell you what the, um, the presenter did in their own cases. So I'll present- I'll make one comment. Those pictures are not fair because I look much older than everybody else. That's just a comment. Look how young everybody looks. Rob, man, I remember you then. All right, Yoshi, go for it. All right, thanks, Gaurav. Um, the first case is 82-year-old active female. Um, she was apparently traveling all over the world 
with no severe mitral regurgitation. Um, I'll show you the echo from a year ago, presented with hypoxemia and also fatigue. Um, she's got past medical history, but nothing quite significant that will preclude her from surgery. Um, she acutely decompensated over the past few weeks and was transferred to CCU. She was originally admitted to the normal floor, but uh, during the course of the hospital stay, she worsened and was transferred over to the CCU. Her SDS score for mitral valve replacement was 5.2%. So this is the echo from a year ago. Um, you can see that the, in this view, you can see the prolapse leaflet. Um, there was not a great um, 3D echo, so I can't tell you exactly where the prolapse was, but um, it was on the P2 segment, a little more towards the P3 side. Um, the P cell was one centimeter, and the mean gradient across the mitral valve at that time was seven millimeters of mercury. Um, hold on, this is not right. Uh, sorry, um, this is the TEE after emission, and you can see an additional prolapse um, in, in addition to the MR segment that we saw originally in 2009. I will show you a 3D echo. And there's a torrential MR that is seen on the color Doppler. And this is the 3D echo. Um, you can see that originally this portion had a prolapse from the previous um, 2019 echo, but there's an additional ruptured chordae um, that you can see causing a significant MR. The mean gradient at this time was seven millimeters of mercury. The MVA was calculated as 3.9 square centimeters. Um, this was relatively a generous calculation, I would say. It was probably lower than that. The frail gap is less than 10 millimeters and the coaptation depth is less than 11 millimeters. So this was a chest X-ray right before she got transferred over to the CCU. So clearly she was in flash pulmonary edema uh, from this acute MR. And I think the slides were not in the right order. So what would you do at this point? Um, so would you consider this patient for a mitral valve repair with a partial ring um, or using neocords? Mitral valve repair with partial ring and resection. Sorry, that was the first option. Mitral valve repair with complete ring and resection. Mitral valve repair with complete ring and neocords or mitral valve replacement. Um, last is the mitral clip. Sorry for the uh, the slides not working properly. Hey, Yoshi, one other quick thing. Can you maybe let everybody know your um, the STS score? Do you remember what that was roughly? So 5.2 for mitral valve replacement, and this is in the light of urgent procedure. Uh, mitral valve repair was slightly lower. It was 4. So she's 6. currently in the CCU. Is she uh, intubated? Is she, she on a lot of oxygen? She's not, she was not intubated, but she was requiring 10 liters of oxygen um, before intervention. So, and her renal function is okay? Her renal function is okay. Creatinine is 1.1. Okay, and does she look frail? She looks borderline frail. Okay, all right. Let's see what everybody would do then. So in the, you know, the waiting time, uh, can you pull it up, Wes? Okay, so 26% of the audience would perform mitral valve repair with complete ring and neocords. So in this particular- I think more important than that is, you know, whether the, the technique's probably not as important. Uh, looks like 
almost 60% would um, try to repair this valve. And about 20% would replace and 20% would do clip, would uh, recommend clip. Okay, so going back to what we did in this particular case. Um, but do you wanna see what, what, do, what do the folks here think, I guess, before you get into the various you know, techniques that are options, I get. Vinay, you wanna start? And I guess Vinay made a good point. We should all probably mention our disclosures. Vinay, if you wanna start, <laughs> right. any particular disclosures. No financial disclosures, though I have a non-renumerative uh, position with an Abbott regards to the Tendine truck. Um, so, I mean, obviously you've got this slide with a mitra clip, but uh, it's good that it sort of shares what the audience is probably majority surgeons perhaps. Um, but as you see, you've got a, a whole panelist that all do mitra clip and transcatheter mitral therapies. Um, so it really, it goes down to risk. From an anatomic perspective, the valve looks highly repairable. Um, what's not mentioned in your list is uh, the adding of a surgical ablation procedure or a maze and left atrial appendage occlusion simultaneously, I think would be additive if surgical approach would be uh, approached. There's a obvious P2 flail, but there's also a secondary cord uh, just to the, to the medial aspect uh, that would be relevant as we do a transcatheter consideration or surgical consideration. So there's a, a dual mechanism, same P2, but dual mechanism. Um, obviously primary MR, so I think it looks highly repairable. Uh, not to worry about the gradient since it's likely secondary to the tricuspid regurgitation, but I'm sure uh, Myra and DD perhaps can comment uh, specifically on that. Uh, but obviously in someone that's an extremis, um, even though her STS risk is not prohibitive, um, it's quite high. Uh, this will also, this type of patient will also be answered in the coming uh, repair MR trial, but um, I think it's prudent to proceed with a clip on this particular patient. Rob, you feel differently? I mean, I guess it really comes down to what is the patient's real risk, right? And we have an STS of five, but Yoshi's know, painted a picture that they're in the, in the ICU on a lot of oxygen with I some omitted. Yeah, I think that's an important piece to the SDS, right? It's an instantaneous number that doesn't take into every variable that's, you know, out there that's going on with this patient's risk, number one of which is frailty, which we now use as a second uh, measure of assessment when we're looking at these patients from the heart team approach. So as, as Vinay was talking about, I think that you're really looking at anatomically a valve that's very repairable, but the question is, is she operable at this point? And so in this setting with her being in the CCU, worrying about her oxygen level, is she trending towards one of improvement and therefore compensation? And you can wait for either a clip or surgery uh, if she's trending in the right direction. But if she's not or she's stalled, I think a, a clip is the right treatment for this. Now, I guess in that setting, we have a gradient that's elevated. Right, so that's a concern, although most of it is likely due to the MR. But we also have a very small valve area, uh, opening area that was calculated. So one of the problems with the valve areas calculated uh, sometimes on the preoperative TEs, particularly if it's been in a patient who's not intubated uh, and they're doing a, a high risk TEE, they get through that pretty quick. And even though they can do some of these measurements uh, kind of post hoc, I think the, the important thing is really a good TE measurement at the time of the procedure is really where you do it. So you can plan for a device and, and plan for going in for a mitra clip and then 
say, hey, this is not the right procedure and later decide to bail uh, with just a really good TE at the time of the procedure. Myra, what do you think? Oh, you're muted, Myra. Can you hear me now? Okay, yeah, sorry about that. Um, but I don't need to repeat um, what has been said already about risk. You know, it's always about risk, but also about what the patient wants. And if you ask me if I put myself in the place of the patient, 82-year-old in the ICU, I know on one, one option can be a surgical option that gives me a much better resolution of the regurgitation and maybe perhaps take care of the left atrial appendage. But um, at that age and at that risk, as a patient, I would, I would choose a microclip. And as an operator, I know it's not the perfect anatomy, um, but uh, I think with a 3.9 area uh, in that gradient, which we all think is good to MR, probably a one um, NTE device um, uh, will give us enough uh, reduction of the regurgitation just to help her team, as she felt maybe a couple of years ago. So I would vote for a clip, small. Paul, what do you think? Do you, any, do you agree with what's been stated, or any other thoughts? Uh, I think it's a it's a great discussion. Not a whole lot to add. I think the main question I always have for my surgeons uh, in these situations, and particularly in this age group, is uh, how how hard are you going to try to repair this valve? You know, we know most of the survival benefit for repairs in relatively younger patients, somebody over eighty, particularly somebody who is borderline shock. I'm not sure what the survival bit of repair versus replacement is exactly. Um, you know, would you be upset if your surgeon just went in and replaced it quickly and got out? Would you be upset yeah. in an 82 year old? No, no, not at all. Not at all. But it has relevance because if you're going to replace it, uh, then, you know, would you want me to have a chance at trying to repair it with clip? And that goes to Vinay's comment earlier, or uh, actually maybe it was Rob saying that, well, you, you can try the clip and if it doesn't work, you have a bail, which is a replacement. Uh, and so, so that's where that nuanced discussion comes into play, you know, cause if you're just, if you're dead set on replacing it, then giving it a shot at clip, which is pretty good chance actually, I think of uh, getting a good result uh, is a reasonable way. But if you really want to repair, then obviously the surgical repair is going to be more likely to succeed. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Didi, any other thoughts? Anything on the anatomy? Are you concerned about the small valve area? Is this going to need more than one device, you think? Well, in these acute flails and cardiogenic shock, the most important thing is to get them uh, on a better respiratory status. The problem with this 3D is that, you know, it's at the time of the acquisition, but with these acute flails, they end up rupturing more cores by the time they come into the cath lab. So there's obviously a P2 flail, but there's multiple cortical ruptures there on the medial and lateral, and there's a hint of a P1 flail too. And given this attack strategy, you already have a baseline mitral mean gradient. I wouldn't go with the G4 device. The larger, the wider devices in this small annulus is probably not going to be conducive because the P2 segment's acting as two independent uh, portions. So one device. But then the other question would be redo and the risk of re-intervention. If we bring the V-wave down enough, she might have symptomatic benefit. But if we don't, she still commits a surgery. So it's a very challenging anatomy. Yeah, I agree. I think this anatomy is challenging. And, and I think it would need potentially more than one device since it's kind of across the valve in a couple of different segments and you have a small valve to begin with. And it, I think it, to me, it'd be somebody that I'd have to really be convinced would 
is is prohibitive risk. And and I think the the point that I think Rob made or someone made about you know can you diarise him and get him to a point that they could undergo surgery. So Gilbert, any other thoughts? Anything else that hasn't hasn't been mentioned? Yeah, no, I echo I echo everyone's comment. I think really the decision tree is can this patient be optimized and do the whatever procedure in a more elective setting or. Well, basically, this is more an urgent procedure with a bridge to decision, either surgical or, or um, you know, with a good result. One okay. of the uh, attendees actually asked a question uh, to the panelists. How many of you guys have uh, expertise uh, in urgent uh, mitral clip, uh, kind of like a case like this, versus an elective setting? You want to start by answering that? Uh, well, me personally, I've done a couple, a couple cases, uh, you know, patient in shock uh, where, you know, patient is really prohibited surgical risk. Uh, we definitely ask our heart failure cardiologists and our uh, anesthesiologists to optimize the patient as much as possible hemodynamically. And, and typically, I think you can definitely, uh, you know, with favorable anatomy, get a reasonable yeah. acute result and then tie them over to something more definitive if necessary. Yeah, I've certainly done them on ECMO in some cases. Myra or Paul, anything to comment? Yeah, so it happens occasionally. Um, yeah, I remember one not too long ago on balloon pump, and it just helps, uh, you know, if you get a good reduction of MR, it helps stabilize the patient and then come off balloon pump or any other support therapies. Um, yeah, sometimes it's needed. And Didi, what's your, what's your thought on the gradient um, that you see? Is this something real or concerning, or is this just there's so much MR? Well, the gradient is really flow dependent. And when I was looking at the images, the first thing I was looking at was the leaflet thickness and leaflet integrity. The leaflets look like sails. They're flowing. They're actually having a lot of good hemodynamics to them. So they're not thick and rheumatic in appearance. So they should disappear and it should be okay. The thought process behind what I would be thinking regarding this is we've done a case series of cardiogenic shock and flail leaflets and it's very satisfying. When the ones with a diet at LVs, if we don't get a good enough reduction, then what we end up doing is committing the patient to a mitral valve replacement. And then that goes into the thinking of, can they take anticoagulation or not? So it becomes a bit more complicated in the thought process of, do we do a clip or not? Um, not beyond the gradient. All right, uh, Gilbert, let's, I mean, uh, Yoshi, you wanna go tell us what, what you did? We yeah, sorry, I started to show the slide so people know what we did. Um, but since we have an expert, um, Paul, I mean, Paul, Paul's here. So Paul, can you tell us about um, the G4 system? What's so new? Because, you know, we have all the surgeon audiences and they, they we're not all familiar with uh, with the G4 system. Yeah, so, uh, the, the main aspects of the G4 uh, that are nice are that it has its ability to... Oh, I think we're losing you on your connection. Yeah, I guess uh, we lost Paul a little bit there. So, Mara, you want to? Yeah, sure. Thank you. The two main, the two main uh, which features. Which allows you to. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? Better now. <laughs> so, do you want Paul to continue? Or do you want me to? Why don't you go ahead, Mara? And when Paul's back, we can. Yeah, Paul, we heard half of it or less, I'm sorry, but um, what I was trying to say, the two main features is um, 
you know, we do have now four sizes. So it's still the same small and large um, size of device that you have it right there at the center of the picture. I don't have control of uh, showing with, with a mouse or a pointer, but yep. you have the small and the large and within the small and the large, you have a narrow version and a wide version of each of those. So that allows you to kind of customize the type of device that you need according to the anatomy. So if we have a very a large um, valve area and um, we know that we're going to need more than, than one device, um, then maybe for those type of patients, you may want to start with a larger one and a wide one to try to grab more tissue. When you get to the smaller anatomies, like this lady, uh, you, you, I would vote that you we stay on the smaller size. So I think uh, I would pick the NT as a regular one uh, to begin with. Um, the other important feature is the independent um, uh, grasping. So you, the grippers on the prior versions uh, used to act uh, simultaneously on both sides. So here we have the option if we, for some reason, cannot capture both anterior and posterior leaflets, you could grab one and then, um, you know, have independently grasp one and then go to the other one. So that's another important feature. The other thing I like is uh, measurement of the left atrial pressure. Uh, we used to do that regardless, even with the prior generations, but uh, we had to place a, a fourth fringe, either multipurpose or pictal in the left atrium to monitor the V-wave. So one of you already mentioned, I think it was Didi, if we lower the V-wave um, and the mean left atrial pressure enough, this patient may feel better. So we like to monitor that during the procedure. So with this generation of, of the device, we have that capability without having to add another catheter, which makes it simpler. And now each, every single pr procedure will have the, um, the option of um, giving you the left atrial pressure if you want to follow that. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so for the sake of time, um, you know, we picked NTW because we thought that the, uh, the regurgitation was, uh, was mainly from, uh, from, the gradient was mainly from the regurgitation. So we did transeptal puncture here, and then we went on to place the clip Somehow the video is not playing really smoothly. Um, so we really aim for that uh, prolapsing segment. Um, the prolapsing segment was relatively wide. So initially we aimed for the medial aspect right in the middle of uh, A2P2 um, so that we can keep the orifice area and potentially get the maximal benefit. Um, this is after the first position that we placed. And there was still a residual gradient that we saw after the first one. In hindsight, this was probably okay. But um, at this point, the mean grain was six. So we thought uh, that you know, potentially we can move it slightly lateral and create uh, more orifice on the medial side and see if that improves the, uh, the, both the gradient as well as the, um, the flow. So the second one, the second attempt was placed slightly more medial. And after this placement, we saw larger jet on both sides. Um, it was quite large, and you can see the quantum effect here. And the mean gradient went up to eight. So we thought this was not good. So the third attempt, uh, we tried to put it in between where we placed. Um, so not right in the middle, but slightly towards the, um, the A3P3 side. And still we had some gradients, uh, but we had some regurgitation jet that we saw, but um, it looked a lot better than the second attempt and the mean gradient dropped down to five. Um, what was really striking was the V-wave. As Myra said, we were monitoring V-wave during the procedure and it went down from 62 down to 21. And the flow reversal in the pulmonic vein disappeared. 
So we thought, you know, despite the mean gradient five and some residual MR, we thought this was a victory and we sort of came out. Um, this is the, uh, the post, um, this is the following day uh, where we got the transthoracic echo. Um, they read it as moderate MR and the patient did really well. So she completely weaned off on um, post-op day number two. She was out of the CCU on um, post-op day one or post-procedural day one. She started ambulating immediately and she was discharged on day seven to rehab. So, you know, it was not a perfect result and we had to do a couple attempts um, to get the optimal result. But at the end of the day, I think she was a pretty- you know, she would, would there have been any scenario that you would not have deployed the clip? I mean, the, the first two, you know, were suboptimal. Let's say you never got to that third one that you still had either you know, too high gradient or too much residual armor. Would you ever get to a case where you said, I'm just gonna pull out and we're gonna think of option B, which is surgery, or yeah. would you deploy it and then see what happens and know that you're gonna replace the valve? I'm curious. I mean, that's a really good question. And one of the things that we really uh, relied on was the hemodynamics. So the LA pressure really, really came down dramatically after the first clip. So the first clip that we tried to place decreased the, uh, the LA pressure to about a half, the V wave to about a half. And then the last one decreased it to about a third. So based on that, despite having that gradient, we thought it was going to help her quite significantly. And I just want to ask any of the, the surgeons on the panel, um, since it's come up in the chat, do you think this patient, you can argue, is prohibitive risk or at least on label for, for mitral clip? I mean, we already talked about the STS being five, may not be representative. Vinay or Rob, any thoughts on that? Let's say they had diuresis, they still look the same. They're still on a bunch of auction in the, in the CCU. Yeah, I think that would certainly be one of the characteristics for frailty. And, and remember that the vast majority of the patients who are <clears throat> in the STS database are chronic symptomatic mitral regurgitation, not acute mitral regurgitation. So I think the STS really <clears throat> underappreciates the severity of illness in this case. So I think that's what the heart team approach is for. And as a surgeon in this case, if we all said, hey, you know, I think this patient's particularly frail. I think she's going to do really poorly at 82 with a long-term recovery after uh, surgery, even if it's minimally invasive. Then I think that's certainly a candidate for, uh, you know, for a candidate for an edge-to-edge -edge therapy. I think that's the right thing. And so that'd be prohibitive risk. That's, that's an insightful comment. Hey, Yoshi, why don't, why don't we continue on with the next case, which is also a degenerative mitral valve. Um, <clears throat> can go ahead and this is an 84-year-old female, so in keeping with the previous theme, recent pacemaker for six sinus syndrome. It's a patient I treated a few months ago, um, worsening shortness of breath uh, for six months, was about class two to three. Next slide. Cranon was 1.3. Her STS was 5.5 for repair. Okay, let's play these. Okay, you could see what you see is a um, anterior leaflet prolapse. And I'm hoping that uh, some of the cardiologists can kind of pay attention to this and tell me what their thoughts on the posterior leaflet is a little short, but I don't think it's restricted. That's uh, probably a good picture there. See anterior leaflet prolapse. Posterior leaflet is a little verticalized. And I think the options are clip, uh, open surgery, mini surgery, repair or replace. 
or do we consider it for a trial? Let's um, curious what the panelists would think. Let me start with this time with the cardiologist. So Myra or Paul, and then I want Didi to weigh in on the anatomy. Yeah, I think the fourth option of TMVR trial um, should at least be discussed with a patient. Uh, we know that we repair, we can reduce the amount of regurgitation, but um, it's not going to it's, it's not going to be perfect. So there's always some residual regurgitation. Um, I, I think that leaflet was short. We'll see what Didi thinks about that, but uh, it's not um, it's not like a super easy piece of cake. Uh, clip case or a big prolapse and all that. So I think a TMVR trial, it's, uh, it's an option. Didi, what do you think about the echo and the, the posterior leaflet? And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have more echoes for you. No worries. Um, so there's a hint of a papillary muscle rupture um, on the anterior portion. And there's like an A2 overriding uh, segment and it's a redundant anterior segment. So the question is, uh, how, what can we do? The LV cavity size uh, looks generous, uh, but it's a very long redundant anterior mitral leaflet. So if for traditional TMVR, if what you can see is during contractility, during systole, we're already having anterior mitral leaflet contact the basal anterior septal wall. It's not so much a concern of outflow obstruction with the TMVR device put in there, either transapically or transseptal. It's more about risk of LVOT obstruction with that anterior mitral leaflet afterwards. But if you have a um, clinical trial device that can actually do a leaflet capture mechanism for anchoring for that mitral valve, then you could do a transcatheter replacement. So the outflow obstruction is a concern. But looking at the LV, this patient's gonna drop their EF after you do an intervention either way. So if you did a repair strategy, you could potentially try that too. Now the posterior leaflet doesn't look tethered um, and you could potentially scoop it up. And these ways, uh, if you go medial or lateral to where the actual flail component is at, you can scoop the posterior leaflet up, but it'll be an anatomically challenging case. Paul, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on, on the anatomy here. Is this something you think could be clippable? Uh, so um, we, we have treated, you know, with clip some patients uh, who have uh, small leaflets, uh, but this one I, I would try to put into the TMVR tri as trials. Uh, I think Myra said it very well. Um, these are relatively ideal. I mean, we could certainly put a clip on just anything, but it's not <laughs> going to get the result we want. Uh, and, the, you know, MR elimination is, is our business. And uh, TMVR would be a really uh, good way to go with this patient. I, I would support that. And clippability, and do you agree with, you know, potentially a TMVR, big R, the replacement? Yes, I would. Well, let's ask the surgeons now. Yeah. Vinay, what do you think? So quick question first before uh, answering. So 82 had a pacemaker for six sinus syndrome, creatinine 1.3, but really relatively stable symptoms. Correct. Uh, yeah. she's, an out, she's an outpatient and her symptoms have been going on for six months, but getting worse over the last So month. other than age, what would cause the prom to be five. Uh, I think the fact that she was female and her crown, and I think her, if, if you actually look at her body weight, her, that crown and probably correlated with a GFR that was a bit lower than, than a crown of one, three and you or me. And so, you know, I, you know, I, you know, we all 
uh, do these in interventions. Um, I think Myra said a very good comment about the potential inclusion criteria or exclusion criteria in this case for TMVR, uh, big R, in terms of the uh, angulation of the outflow track or the ergomitral angle, the tall anterior leaflet. Um, she, she may indeed, because volume shifts and if she got better or worse, that could potentially be a potential problem with the TMVR. But if, if we just put the risk calculation aside for a moment, um, and she's an outpatient, eyeball, class two symptoms, honestly, this is a highly repairable valve. Um, if she has, assuming she has no coronary disease, this is a high risk transcatheter mitral valve repair, high risk or complicated as you've seen from our experienced operators on the panel uh, with one or two clips and some, some complexities. But um, you've got a beautiful seagull uh, deformity there with a mid-secondary leaflet tethering point, um, dividing that secondary leaflet or an anterior cordal transfer and a ring. Um, this is a, you know, this is a potentially easily repairable valve and I would have probably done this robotically. Gilbert, and Yoshi, let's go to the questions and I'll have Rob give his answer while people are voting. Oh yeah. Do that. So the options are, we showed that, all right. <laughs> Sorry. All right, Rob, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really agree with Danae, which is, this, this looks to be a very repairable valve. And so then it really gets down to the patient and the risks. And TMVR, at least discussing as far as TMV big R uh, replacement, it's important to discuss with the patients that this also includes chronic anticoagulation uh, with those devices, as opposed to a repair strategy, which you know the patient wouldn't really need anticoagulation specifically for the valve. And at that age, with increasing needs for you know, coming on and off blood thinners, that becomes a risk. And you could even potentially address uh, an appendage closure at the time of, of the procedure. So I, like Vinay, would say that my optimal strategy for her would be a robotic surgical approach or minimally invasive approach. Um, and then, <clears throat> but if, if there was anything else in there that made me concerned about her being prohibitive risk or high extreme or high uh, risk, I would certainly have a a conversation with her about TMBR, uh, big R for, for trial inclusion. Good. Those are good thoughts. So, um, you know, she was referred for mitral clip. We, we spoke about it, whether um, our heart team was very concerned that the post-relief, it was going to be difficult to grab. Uh, we have some very experienced mitral clip operators and uh, thought it would be a suboptimal result. Um, she was, we discussed the TMBR, big R trials with her. She was Having none of it, she really wanted a um, the least invasive surgical approach possible. Um, so we we offered her a minimally invasive uh, surgery. I was not convinced that we were definitely going to be able to repair the valve. You want to go to the next slide, Yoshi. Um, and on the left side, you could see how foreshortened the the posterior leaflet is, but it certainly did look long enough that we could um, repair it. And and based on testing, we put I think three cords and a 32 ring. If you go to the next slide, I think this is the final echo. Yep. And um, you can see there's uh, just a small, maybe mild residual MR. And next slide. And then she did well, was discharged early and, and um, had a discharge echo and she's now about two to three months post-op. So I, I think, you know, these two cases demonstrate a few different things. First, that's clearly the STS is not 
Um, the only factor in the decision, I think people brought up the heart team, which I think is really critical um, at all of your centers to, to discuss together. Um, and presenting to the patient the pros and cons of all the different options, I think those are also important. Um, and, and being honest about the pluses and minuses, the recovery for surgery and the potentially suboptimal result. Anybody else have any comments about these two cases? Yeah. So, Laura, I can I just ask a quick question? So, yeah. you know, relative to my comment earlier, you know, here's an 84-year-old, you know, uh, the survival benefit of repair or replacement might be debated in somebody in that age group. Um, you know, how, you, this is obviously what we would want. We want a great repair. Uh, how Can you just educate the non-surgeon uh, on like how quickly you did this compared to how quickly somebody would do a replacement, you know, you know, and that, those types of different effects on, on the patient and the outcome? Yeah, um, certainly I think it depends on the operator. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a fast surgeon, a lightning fast surgeon, but I don't think this really this repair was substantially longer, let's say more than 10, maybe 15 cross clamp minutes longer than a replacement in, in my hands. I think the other panels um, might be even quicker than me. I think in terms of the thought process, I, I know Didi brought up that the LV was a bit dilated and I was concerned about that. And I think long-term that probably does, long-term is relative to everybody, but long-term that probably is maybe more important if, if you say, let's take the MR off the table, whether it's a replacement or a repair. And I think you can make an argument certainly for replacement, but this was actually pretty good quality tissue and a lot of leaflet, which then makes it easier to repair. If we have multiple segments and we have to do resection and cords and something complicated in 84, you know, I've been burned in the past of trying to spend a lot of time repairing it. Uh, and, and, you know, in this case, it really wasn't that hard. And Paul, Paul and Didi, I will add that, um, you know, these are all retrospective data, but um, there is some evidence suggesting that even in the elderly, even in the, uh, the octogenarians and nonagenarians, mitral valve repair actually does provide some benefit. Um, and the survival benefit doesn't really have to take five to 10 years, um, you know, avoiding the anticoagulation. Um, I don't know what other um, components that really goes into that benefit, but there are some evidence that shows you know, much of our repair, even in the elderly, are beneficial. So I think that's why we're really trying to repair these valves as much as possible whenever we can. Well, I think that's really good to hear because, you know, with the repair MR trial coming about, those are some of the questions we're going to be looking at, you know. Uh, uh, you know, when somebody is in that age group, uh, will the surgeon, you know, obviously want to take the time to repair the valve and, and, and get that result? I mean, if you get a repair like that, with what I've just showed, Mitral clip is going to have a tall order uh, to, to for competition. So, I mean, that's a great result. Yeah, so what Paul yeah. was talking about the repair MR trial is, um, is an Abbott trial that will look at intermediate risk patients, which will be randomized to surgical mitral valve repair versus the mitral clip procedure. And it's starting to enroll, right? I mean, I think it's going to be a highly anticipated study. And Paul's a national PI, so. Yeah, I, I will uh, mention that the whole is, uh, in this particular pathology, we have very short posterior leaflet, and one has to be very mindful how much cooptation you uh, restore at the end of the, the surgical repair. Uh, because with a dilated LV, if there's adverse remodeling, you might end up having more restriction of the posterior leaflet, and you might actually have recurrent MR uh, after surgical repair You know, in a few years, whether it was from fibrosis uh, or LV dilatation. 
That's a great comment and that goes, that is connected to my question. My question to the surgeons was going to be related to the choice of repair. So are you taking in consideration um, the choice of ring, um, uh, taking in consideration the fact that the patient may come back? She's 84 now, but uh, the statistics say, what is a third of the surgical repairs or replacement will come back within 10 years for a repeat intervention. So she's gonna be much older. Are you choosing rings that are going to be favorable for a transeptal valvin ring in the future? To um, Rob or, or Vinay, what's your thoughts? I mean, clearly I used a complete ring here, but. I would say in most instances, I don't use a complete ring when we're just talking about standard degenerative valve disease, unless it's been complicated by longstanding atrial fibrillation or, <clears throat> or some sort of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that's affected the, the ventricular size and, um, and geometry. So in this case where the ventricle is much more dilated, I would consider a ring. In that case, it would be uh, semi-rigid, which would, which would work better for a valve and ring. But this patient still would need a complex valve and ring should it happen because she had such a very long anterior leaflet, she would not be just a straight up favorable valve and ring candidate, even with a good leaflet separation procedure uh, or leaflet division procedure, um, and she still would be a, a potential risk for um, LVOT obstruction. So <clears throat> really, I mean, I think all of us, when we're fixing a valve, we're thinking about doing the best job we can fixing that valve. And if we do a good job with that, actually for bileaflet prolapse or anterior leaflet prolapse, if you look at 20-year outcomes, obviously these are all very, uh, prolific sites with great outcomes, but it's about a 25% chance of reintervention over a 20 year period of time. So that's pretty reasonable. And at 84, trying to get to 90, uh, I think your your odds are pretty much in your favor if you get good coaptation at the end of your case. I would say two important points to Paul's question. There is ample data. In fact, one of the earliest um, linked STS analyses with CMS data was exactly this question is looking at the longitudinal outcome over 10 years of patient over the age of 65 linked to CMS. Um, the results are exactly like the Mayo series uh, in younger patients. So there, there is very clear evidence that repair is superior to replacement in the elderly population, a matched linked longitudinally propensity matched data. Um, so second point is this is, a, this is a situation I think Gaurav mentioned you have a lot of redundant tissue. Uh, yes, the posterior leaflet may be restricted by echo, but probably the co-optation length of the posterior leaflet was relatively sizable. And, and basically the repair that Gorov did, I would have done something slightly different, but the general concept is um, anterior leaflet uh, co-optation restoration. And in this case, whether uh, you add Gore-Tex cords to right size it to the posterior leaflet length, or you divide and do a cordal transfer of that uh, uh, anterior leaflet, um, this is gonna have a good long-term result. This is, a, this is a pretty highly repairable valve um, and I wouldn't be worried about a recurrence in this particular case. All right, great. Yoshi, what do you think? Should we move on? I think so. Uh, we got two more cases. Great discussion. Thank you, everybody, yeah. All right, um, next case is gonna be presented by Gilbert. Um, you wanna take over, Gilbert? I'll run the slides. 
Sure, thank you. Sorry. So uh, this is a, a case that I presented uh, previously before in another meeting, but I want to uh, highlight some points here. So it's a young lady, 59-year-old, but in class 4 heart failure. Uh, she has both prosthetic MS and MR, and the re-op risk is not terribly high, but, uh, but still, you know, 6.7%. Um, this is interesting. So she actually had a mini-invasive uh, mitral valve replacement in 2005 with a paramount valve, 27 millimeters, and had a multitude of complications, including right phrenic nerve injury, had the trach and ischemic valve and re requiring surgery, and really left her quite debilitated, requiring home oxygen uh, with COPD, pulmonary hypertension, AFib, et cetera. Uh, coronary is normal. Uh, peer pressure was quite high at the time of the right high calf, 90 over 40. EF is still relatively preserved at 66%. Uh, uh, Yoshi, can you try to play the video? I'm not sure why they don't play automatically. Um, and you can see here, uh, the prosthetic has really kind of run its course of time. Uh, the leaflets are pretty fibrous and, and, and calcific, certainly a lot of MR. Uh, you can see a high gradient mean grade of 15. Uh, just of uh, interest of note to uh, our panelists here, the septal wall thickness on 10. Uh, in terms of other potential uh, therapy associated with this decision-making. Uh, of course, uh, with these kind of patients, we typically do a CT, uh, gated CT, to look at some of the anatomy of the mitral prosthesis and uh, LVOT. You can see here the native LVOT is from 307. The neo LVOT, to, uh, to put a sapien 3 valve in there, is uh, rather small, uh, 150 millimeter square or so, uh, and the aortomitral angle is on 120. Uh, so we discussed the patient whether to do surgery again versus uh, transcaptor uh, mitral valve replacement of a valve in valve. And you can see there are some concerns from a procedural standpoint. Uh, and we can talk to the panel about this in terms of LVOT obstruction. Uh, is this small new LVOT clinically relevant to this particular patient who is not, you know, very mobile and active? And the question is, you know, what size uh, sapien free valve would you put in there? So. Uh, with that, I'll pause and maybe Yoshi, you can uh, moderate. Yeah. So maybe I'll ask Dee first about this Neil LVOT, um, the concept and what it means and what kind of numbers we're looking at here. Yeah. We so can look at the Yoshi. next slide as well. Sorry. The next slide. Is so going back to the original one, so I mean, just looking at the size right here, the area that you got for the Val was 531. Okay, if you go to the slide before this that um, Gilbert was showing, um, if you can play those images again, number one, uh, there's two things that catch our eye. So the concept of Neo-LVOT is really just a new outflow tract. And the outflow tract issue of concern is the most ventricular portion of the surgical valve that potentially could make contact with the basal to mid anterior septal wall. Um, and we basically induce a permanent anterior motion of the mitral leaf of the surgical valve which would then cause outflow obstruction because the surgical mitral prosthesis will always open systole diastole to allow blood flow to happen. But we put a transcatheter heart valve within their surgical device, the leaflet is gonna be permanently uh, motionless. And that's what the problem is. In this patient, they have severe MR and severe MS with a degenerative bowel prosthesis, but on top right-hand corner, they have severe RV dysfunction. Uh, so the mechanism for neo-LVOT is multifactorial. One, it could be that they have a basal anterior hypertrophy or some kind of Holcomb phenomenon. The other is that they have a severely enlarged right ventricle that actually compresses the ventricular septum of the LV, thereby decreasing your uh, distance between the basal strut to the anterior wall. 
And the third mechanism would be like dialysis or fluid volume issues where the patient actually is just completely hypovolemic and then their LV is hyperdynamic. Those are the main three things. Last one would be like uh, if it was not a surgical, but a valve and ring, any kind of subcortical apparatus. So a neo-LVOT, usually less than 190 is where we see an MVARC change in a gradient, a peak to peak of over 10 millimeters in mercury. It's been done as low as the 135s, as long as it, but there's gonna be an LVOT gradient afterwards. Now in the Hocum literature, if we have a peak to peak of 40, we get symptomatic 10, not so much, but MVARC has established that surgical criteria is 10. Um, but this patient's at high risk for a gradient um, with a 26 S3. Thanks, Didi. Didi. What would you recommend then? Is, you think uh, transcatheter approach is not ideal? Well, she's 59 years of age. The few things that come into my mind is that if we do a transcatheter mitral valve replacement, she's going to need anticoagulation. And there's anemia in here that we don't know what the deal is with the anemia. Um, she's also got this RV dysfunction. So she's going to be at high risk. And, you, and as Myra has really elegantly demonstrated in the mitral trial that the one-year mortality with underlying pulmonary hypertension and RV dysfunction is significant, needs to be of concern. Um, you know, ideally, she would get a tricuspid ring and a complete surgical mitral valve prosthesis redo and give her time to buy something, but she's going to potentially need some kind of um, septal ablation or LVOT modification if the valve dives to ventricular during the deployment. So, so, Gaurav, we can do the poll question for this one. So I'm yeah. going to have people do the poll and then have the, uh, the panelists um, comment on what they Honor or Paul, do you have anything else to add with your experience? I'll just be very brief because I think Paul has experience in this type of uh, patient. So this is a very different anatomy like Didi um, already um, described. I think there's the RV pushing the septum. So it's a different pathology. This is not septal hypertrophy. And... Um, your options of uh, uh, septal reduction therapies are not going to work here. Um, you could do percutaneous laceration of the leaflet, but I think even there, the risk would be significant. So I know Paul has experience. Um, you want to mention well, the other alternative? Or well, uh, my, well, Myra, Myra is uh, well uh, versed on this because she was on the panel when Vinnie Bapat and I just did another case of this um, last week. It was actually a 29 paramount with no uh, no um, neo-LVOT as well. Or maybe we're not supposed to say that yet, Paul? <laughs> I, I yeah. apologize. Maybe I don't want to disclose. I don't want to disclose too much about that. The, let's go to the but, survey then. Yeah, she's aware of the case. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think there's any good uh, option here unless you do them. You're breaking up, Paul. Yeah, sorry, Paul. Maybe they don't have internet in Minnesota. Minneapolis, there's a lot of riots. Yeah, not a lot of. Oh, and there's no room here. Okay. Vinay, do you want to comment what you would do? So obviously, it's pretty high risk all around. I guess the question really is the you described. Uh, Gilbert described the pre-operative uh, risks in the initial operation, but how is she now? And I know that the predicted risk was 6.7. Uh, this is going to be a tough case no matter what. You've heard everyone uh, comment. Um, she's, if she's 59, she's not going to have a third time re-op, so she's likely going to need a mechanical valve if a surgical approach was done, transdermal, of course, and then that way you can take care of all of this stuff. 
um, and a lower profile valve to free up the left, left ventricular outflow tract and take the other one out from a surgical standpoint. Um, I think what's not even listed there is actually a, a surgical reop. All surgery. Um, and so I think that should be on there um, to not just completely discount because that's the, that's the most pure anatomic reconstruction. So obviously it's going to be high risk. That being said, if she is otherwise of prohibitive risk based on what you feel, then um, I, I personally would vote for a valve and valve um, and just live with the consequences personally. Rob, any other thoughts? Yeah, you know, honestly, looking at this page, this is someone we'd bring in ahead of time. We'd work on trying to optimize uh, with diuretics and inotropes and see uh, how that RV starts to look before we made a, a complete determination of to surgery versus uh, transcatheter approach. But in this patient, we've and we've done this a couple of times, we know we're going to have a high-risk transcatheter case. But what we're really trying to do is, is get them a year out, maybe, you know, try to reduce the pulmonary pressures. If we have, as Didi was talking about earlier, if we have a, a, a neo-LVOT, you know, that's got a gradient of 10, 12, even 15, not ideal, but survivable, doable, and you can get that patient potentially to a much better circumstance where their RVs working better, their PA pressures come down, because that valve's not going to last forever, but it may get them a year or two of getting better so that you can get them to a surgical valve. And that's probably where we would be thinking first line, unless they made, you know, significant improvement in their overall. So valve and valve as a bridge, if they survive, they have. That's, that's yeah, because she's only 59. No, I guess, would you, would you also agree with Vinay that the patient would need a mechanical valve if you did an operation? Do you think this patient has a life expectancy to get him through surgery of 10 plus years? I don't think you have to. I think that's also another discussion because with all the other stuff she had, she may be a very poor candidate for anticoagulation, which makes transcatheter valves also tricky. That's why I think if you're doing a transcatheter valve and valve, you're thinking of this as a bridge to a, another day, really more than a long-term therapy for this patient. Yeah. Paul, did you have anything else to add since you got cut out? That's something real quick. Is it, yeah, can you hear me now? We're on the low profile as opposed to mechanical. Got it. Yeah, I can hear you, Paul, go ahead. Oh yeah, so I'll just tell you what we would do. Um, we, we would do this with hybrid uh, in the OR, uh, in a hybrid OR. And uh, we've done this before where uh, the surgeon has directly resected the leaglets and done a valve and valve. Uh, and it's very quick. You can do it in 15 minutes. And we had a case just like this recently where we had concerns about the RV and the PA pressures and we were in and out very quickly. So you did it on pump, stop the heart, cut the Correct. leaglets out, deploy the safety and valve under direct vision. So kind of like that fourth yeah. choice it looks like. Yeah, and it worked very well. I guess, well. I guess I some, as a surgeon, I'm sure the other surgeons probably feel the way. If you feel that way, if you're going to go ahead and do that, then why not just take out the valve and probably get a yeah. bigger valve, a bigger, bigger EOA? And it's a good discussion. Uh, if as long as there's not concerns about PPM, because uh, that is going to be one of the major issues. Uh, but it does reduce the amount of time. Uh, and my surgical partner Vinny Bapat, you know, says it saved him probably 40 minutes or more which can make a big difference when the RV is not so good. So, uh, so it, th that was our approach and it's worked well. I have a question for all the surgeons here. So um, Yoshi, if you can lead this question, you know, educate us in the cardiology world, the transcatheter world. When you see the bioprosthesis on a redo like this thickened and calcified, 
if we were going to use Bovi technology and try to lacerate it or balloon it or anything, what's the risk of that debris flying off? Should we be using cerebral protection in these cases, transcatheter? I mean, can you educate us on what you feel? Well, I think the calcification that you see in these bioprosthetic valve deterioration is a little different from the native calcification, right? Um, I think the native calcification, when you try to take them out, it comes in pieces. And I think those are the ones that we really get concerned, um, especially MAC when you're trying to debride them. Um, I think those are the ones that really are nasty. When you see calcification on these bioprosthetic valves, they're, they're completely different. Um, so they're, they're sort of in conjunction with the leaflet itself. And I think the chances of these really coming off, I don't think is that high. So I don't know if you have to do a cerebral umbilical protection device because of the bioprosthetic valve calcification itself. I, mean, I don't know if anybody feels differently, but. Uh, I think we just have, we really have such a novice experience with both the protection device as well as this procedure. It's really hard to know. Yeah. I mean, my, my concern about using a Sapien 3 valve is that, um, you know, unless if you really break that uh, ring, the valve is going to have a complete, incomplete expansion. And the pinwheeling and, you know, what's the durability of that in this young patient, I would be a little concerned about it. But um, for a temporary procedure, it's not a bad choice. Um, if you think that the patient's really sick and you can't really get them out. I've done a couple of things too, so. And Yoshi, I think the challenge here is that with the NEO-LVAT being so small, you know, breaking the ring and expanding the valve further would really be dangerous. And so I, I just don't think it's a good option, even though it's technically possible, but it's only a 27 paramount. All right, Gilbert, you want to tell us what you did? Sure. Uh, so as you can see here, we actually decided to uh, went ahead with a transcaptor approach. The patient was pretty adamant about given her, you know, pretty bad uh, experience with the last surgery with all these um, complications and she pretty much uh, did not want it un unless there's absolutely no option. Uh, so interestingly, uh, I mean, I think at the time of the app, there was, they were recommended 29, but, you know, afterwards, I think really modified to 26 slash 29. So we went with uh, overexpanded uh, 26, uh, you know, with the understanding that, you know, we'll, we might have to bail her out with uh, putting her on pump if we have to, uh, if you, you know, crash uh, in, the, in the room. So you can see that here, we, we did that uh, successfully and we, you know, closed ASD and that can be a conversation among the panel as well, but we felt that given the pulmonary hypertension, a bad RV that we don't want to leave any residual, uh, any kind of intraatrial shunting. And you can see hemodynamically here, um, the peer pressure really came down uh, significantly, including the left atrial pressures. Uh, she actually went home in, in, in seven days. You know, she's actually three years out now. Uh, this is obviously just 31, 30 day data, but she really gone off the home oxygen and and with a really good uh, outcome. Then you can see the next slide. I think we did a post- What did you do for anticoagulation? Can you tell the audience? Yeah, we did her, we put on Coumadin uh, for three months. She had AFib already, so it was not a not an issue. Uh, so we put on Warfarin for, for, for three months at least, and I think that's and, what we- And then after that, we just continued. She was off anticoagulation after that, or was she on a NOAC after that for AFib? Um, yeah, I think I, if I remember correctly, she stayed on Coumadin, because she's been pretty stable on Coumadin. So all we right. did not change, change her at all. but. If you go back to the CT slide, Yoshi. Yeah, so you can see here, uh, maybe Didi and Myra and others can comment. You can see the post-CT, certainly there's not much room between the stent frame uh, and, and the septum. But we felt that because it was a mixed MSMR etiology, it's not like a native or, or, or normal surgical valve, maybe the surgical leaflets did not 
like go all the way down to the commissural poles at the bottom. Maybe they just got lucky and, and get pushed out sideways and, and uh, got clearance on her uh, LBOT. The gradient was not really uh, remarkable at all. Do you have a new LBOT area, like a view of the short axis? Um, I don't think I have it here. Do we have a next slide? I don't think so, no. I think that, oh, yeah. Do. yeah, do you see it? Yeah, here. Well, it, it looks like on the echo that the surgical bioprosthetic leaflet didn't extend to the most ventricular portion of the struts by the transcatheter valve device because you can see flow through the sapient stents. So it's a really yeah. nice result. The difference with the Neo-LVOT concept is the Neo-LVOT was designed for TMVR and mitral analyst calcification because those are the high, most high-risk procedures and they can be translated for valve and ring. It's now been applied to valve and valve, which is actually kind of a different beast because the native anti-mitral leaf has actually been resected. So you, you can potentially go lower in these patients, but the original 190 cutoff is more applicable for TMVR and MAC um, and you'll still see a gradient in the valve and valves, but this is a situation where you don't have an anti-mitral leaflet to worry about. You can't predict that. So we are really tight on time, but I do want to just spend three minutes on the last case. Um, and uh, this is a... Okay, so I'll go really quickly, uh, Gaurav. Yeah. This is a MAC case, and I know a lot of surgeons are dealing with MAC, and I thought it's important to highlight some of the different options for big, big MAC. Go ahead. Yeah, so 82 classic symptoms uh, was found to have mitral stenosis, um, more symptomatic, mitral mean grade of 12 in uh, mild to moderate MR. Um, LVOT gradient was present with peak gradient of 31 millimeters of mercury. And this was from a thickened septum. Um, we did the, uh, the preoperative CT scan, the area measured to be about 723-ish. And this is not a perfect LVOT obstruction, um, neo-LVOT calculation. And, you know, our radiologists use a 20 millimeter sapien valve on a 730 millimeter valve, but um, still the Neil LVOT came out as 1.2. It looked like it was going to completely obstruct the, uh, the LVOT. Um, these are some of the other pictures that I got from Rob and Didi, but I'm going to skip um, for the sake of time. So the options, I'm going to go quickly. Mitral valve replacement with complete annual decalcification and patch reconstruction. Mitral valve replacement with limited decalcification transatrial TMVR, or uh, Rob and Gorov, um, I think you guys performed the citral procedure plus septal myectomy, transeptal TMVR with lampoon, alcohol septal ablation with uh, transeptal TMVR, or others. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to continue and tell what, uh, what I did. So these are the pre-op um, TEEs. You can skip this, um, Wesley. We don't have enough time, unfortunately. And this is not plain. Um, you can sort of see the, uh, the thickened septum. Um, and there was a gradient across this LVOT. So this was quite significant. Sort of stopped. Great. OK. Well, Myra, I see Mac. Do you see Mac? Yes, and um, I, I just, before you go to the end, um, I just wanted to mention one more measurement that I think it would be important would be the scurneo LVOT. So when you need to decide between um, alcohol ablation versus lampoon, none of, the, of, of those options are completely, um, you know, are gonna be, uh, are gonna give you a result that you want for sure. So sometimes lampoon, even though, you know, it may be adequate, may not give you enough uh, 
reduction of the, uh, of the gradient or vice versa. So if the new LVOT, if the skirting LVOT is uh, low or small, even after a point you can have obstruction. So I think uh, alcohol ablation would, would be needed in this case uh, if you were contemplating lampoon after that, but I see you went open. <laughs> Sorry, Myra, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, for the sake of time, so start off with septomyectomy and then resected the, uh, the anterior leaflet. And I do put the cuff around the, uh, the leaflet first. I know that um, Gaurav and Rob, I think you guys um, put it in the, um, in the annulus. Um, I typically secure it in four places. Mm -hmm. And then this was the, uh, the implantation. So, you know, we can go really, really slowly and make sure that all the tissues in all the MAC is captured. And I usually take really long time to make sure that it's in the place that where I want it. And I secure it with, uh, with the sutures at the end. So I thought this was a really cool view. Um, this is the Neil LVOT when you're actually looking through the aortic valve. I had this view because of the septomyectomy. And you can see that this area literally is the Neil LVOT uh, when you actually, when the heart starts moving. This is the, uh, the post-op TEE. There was no more gradient um, across, the, uh, across the LVOT. And this is the, uh, the view from, uh, the picture from Gorov. Um, I think Gorov did a similar procedure through right thoracotomy, um, did the septomyectomy. I know that Rob does this robotically and you guys reinforce it with a felt and then place a sapien valve inside of it. Um, I'm gonna skip these slides. Um, so one thing that I wanted to touch is that uh, there is a transcatheter mitral valve replacement options for these mitral annular calcification. Uh, one is through Apollo and the other one's through Summit. And you know, we have the expert here, Vinay, Gaurav, and Paul. So Paul, I do you want to make a comment? You're the national PI of the Summit MAC arm. Just I know you've had a tremendous Ooh. amount of experience and maybe is it, you know, just a, maybe a word of it overall, and then yeah. particularly this case, this case had been, had been a candidate for it. Well, I think the, the early feasibility data on, on Tendine and MAC has, has been very, very promising. Uh, there have been no operative deaths uh, in, that, in that cohort, and so that's why we're studying it in the Summit Pivotal, uh, and it's enrolling really, really well. Uh, this case uh, would not have been approved because of the AOT, so I think you did the right thing. You had to address both the antelephate and the septum, which uh, you did very well. So uh, while I would have liked to have this patient in 10-9 Summit, it, it would not have been uh, possible. And what is your generic? One more trial, yes. Mitral 2 trial yeah. <laughs> has been approved. So we're working on hoping to start enrollment this year. That will be transeptal only. There's the only option. Alcohol ablation and or lampoon are allowed um, depending on uh, anatomy and the expertise of the local center. But um, so Myra, I was going to have you present this slide, so sorry about that. <laughs> Myra, do you think a septal uh, alcohol ablation would have been sufficient? This is a big, big septum. No, but in preparation. So I, I, I do see that um, as uh, adjuvant therapy. So just like you did myectomy um, in, in during a transatrial valve in MAC, um, sometimes the, sep the uh, septal ablation may be helpful um, in preparing. If that's enough, great, but if that's not enough, um, that can prepare so the How patient. much of an interval do you have, Myra, between the, uh, the septal ablation versus? Uh, uh, three to four weeks. So uh, I think one option 
if, if you have the right anatomy, one option would be alcohol ablation, repeat the CT scan in three to four weeks. And um, if this is favorable anatomy for lampoon, and you still don't have a new, a new LVOT that is adequate enough, then you can go ahead and do lampoon. But if despite that your scurnial LVOT is, is, is not good, then there's RF ablation, another option that you could do. There's more septal reduction uh, therapies that you can do to prepare that patient for a transeptal. So unfortunately, many of these patients need that type of work. So it's not, and, and that's an extra, you know. Uh, are there a couple comments about how do you, is there any resources you can uh, direct people to how to learn to measure the NeoLVOT? I know oh. you've, written, you've written about this, so. <laughs> and Didi probably would be the best person to talk about Didi. that. But yeah, I any reference it, and feel free to put it in the chat or something if if, uh, if it's something you can pull up, but I think that'd be helpful for the surgeons, particularly since I know it involves some software that not everybody has. Yeah, yeah, no, it's readily available, commercially available. Uh, I would say PubMed Myra Guerrero's last name, and then <laughs> find out the Neo-LVOT on there. Um, she's done tremendous work on this. It, it's uh, it's actually from the 1960s from the surgical literature. You guys taught us about the neo LVOT with Sam and Pam. So we're just bringing it back with transcatheter mitral valve. The software is by CT. It's a contrast CT beforehand, and it's commercially available. Any package does tabers. Great, uh, Rob. Any other final comments since you uh, have taught us all Citral and been championing it? No, I mean, that was a great result. Uh, Gorob and I do it a little bit different, but I think the outcome ends up being about the same there. I think, you know, a lot of times there's a bunch of different ways to skin a cat. I think the really important part of doing a surgical approach is it's really just meant to be complementary to the transcatheter approaches. It's not one way or the other way. It's, it's you know, having all things available to your heart team when you're making these uh, discussions and plans. So, I think the transcatheter approach is a great way to do it. We look at that first always, and then we then we look to the surgical approach. Today, is there any more role in doing a big big Mac resection and patching? Do you still do that? I still do that, and um, but of course, it's all about judgment and experience and comfort and safety. Um, so uh, this is just highlighting the entire uh, excellent webinar you've put on. So I want to thank you for that. It's it's really about the heart team. Uh, as all of these types of discussions, uh, all of us have, have collaborated on all every single panelist and all of us have been talking about this for years and we learn something new every time, but uh, this is all about heart team as uh, has been said multiple times. Great way to, to wrap it up. Yoshi, any other final comments about this? Oh, I really want to thank the panelists and the audience for, um, for participating and giving great comments, excellent comments, you know, real expertise, um, a word of wisdoms were, we were all over. And I think we had excellent questions. So thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to do this again. Yeah, thank you. And I want to thank this. These panelists are outstanding. I mean, truly experts um, and showing us how the heart team between cardiologists and surgeons and imagers can really work well together. So thank you all. Thank you, the audience, for your time. And please uh, stay well and be safe. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Alawadi and Dr. Kaneko, and thank you to all of our panelists today for your participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at sts.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We would like to thank Medtronic for supporting the STS Summer Webinar Series. Thank you all again, and we hope to see you back here next time.